Welcome to KiteLine, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in the prison system and beyond. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. Before starting with this week's theme, we wanted to share some prison-related news and announcements. A group of former detainees at immigrant detention facilities, the for-profit GEO Group operates, has initiated a class action lawsuit against the company for allegedly profiting off, quote, a readily available captive labor force, unquote. In the last five years, lawsuits filed in federal courts have alleged that for-profit immigrant detention centers run by the two main such companies, GEO Group and CoreCivic, have been using coercion to extract labor from their detainees. The lawsuits claim that corporations are violating minimum wage, unjust enrichment, and anti-slavery laws by forcing detainees to work for a dollar a day, and sometimes for no pay, by threatening them with punishment and depriving them of basic necessities. A Northwestern University political science professor estimates that in 2012, the savings accrued from detainees' labor amounted to about a quarter of each company's net profits. Scandals continue to swirl around the Vermont Department of Corrections. In the wake of two rebellions inside men's facilities, journalists with Seven Days Vermont have now shown a light on conditions inside Vermont's only women's prison, in Chittenden. There, guards have coerced prisoners and ex-prisoners into sexual relationships while using strip searches to humiliate and punish women. One guard seized cocaine from a prisoner in order to use it himself. DOC long turned a blind eye to the extent of awarding that guard with a shift supervisor of the year ceremony. These abuses are endemic in America's prison system, with at least 200,000 sexual assaults annually across the country's prisons. When an eight-year-old girl arrived at the Buckingham Correctional Center in Dillwyn, Virginia, to visit her father, an inmate in the prison, officials from the State Department of Corrections told her she wouldn't be allowed to see him anymore unless she removed her clothes and submitted to a strip search. The child was accompanied by her father's girlfriend, who isn't her legal guardian. They were informed that if they refused to be searched, they could be banned from the prison. It's the prison's policy to strip search minors if officials have reason to suspect that the child's body contains contraband. A day after a story on the incident appeared online, Virginia Governor Ralph Northam suspended the policy, saying, quote, I am deeply disturbed by these reports, not just as a governor, but as a pediatrician and a dad, unquote. The girl's mother said the child, who has several mental health problems, was traumatized by the experience and would no longer try to visit her father in prison. On our show this week, we hear from Dennis Boatwright, a co-organizer with MAPS, Michigan Abolition and Prisoner Support. He presents From Convict to Inmate, which traces the counterinsurgent and repressive measures, such as isolation, book restriction, and even the colors used within the facilities that's used by the Michigan Department of Corrections to neutralize and depoliticize prisoners, despite conditions worsening. He spoke about his time behind the prison walls, along with some of his research, at the recent Bend the Bars conference in Lansing, Michigan. Here he is. My name is Dennis Boatwright. I was incarcerated 24 years. I was in there from 1989 to December the 3rd of 2013. And uh, I've been home almost six years now. 
about almost 20 years ago, I was corresponding with Lucino Hamilton and Siddiqui Abdullah Hassan, Ajami Baruti. And it occurred to us, you know, we used to always get excited when they passing out mail. Very excited when we see the guard coming down the hall passing out mail. Because, you know, I used to be one, I hope it's, you know, it's, it's from Lucino or somebody or Baruti or uh, Siddiqui Abdul Hassan. And um, I had mentioned them, that to them in one of my letters. I said, you ever get excited? He said, yeah, you know, I get very excited about that. And then we all came to conclusion that we are very lonely in prison. Revolutionaries or politically conscious prisoners are very lonely in prison. There are not that many of us in there. And one of the sad things about it, when I was in Alger Maximum Security Prison, I used to get subscription to the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, the Black Scholar is a scholarly journal. I used to have all of these these subscriptions to these papers. And we in solitary confinement. And when I, I used to read them kind of fast, and I used to try to pass it along to other prisoners. And nobody wanted to read them for free. And I'm paying like $900 a year just for the New York Times alone, you know, everyday uh, subscription. But nobody wanted to read it. Nobody wanted to um, read the Black Scholar, the uh, USA Today, or any other thing, even the San Francisco Bay View. And this is kind of saddening to me because here it is, I'm in a prison with 13 other inmates and nobody wanted to do any reading. And this is right around 2003, 2004, 2005. Nobody wanted to do any reading. So it became somewhat disheartening. So this is why I developed a strong bond with the three uh, convicts that I mentioned because being conscious in prison, especially nowadays, is very lonely because you have nobody to talk to. Things that we're talking like right now, you don't have these conversations on a daily basis in prison. So I had to wait till I get a letter to get some type of mental stimulation for other prisoners who were lamenting the same thing. When we look in Lucasville, when you look at the, the total population of prison, when you have like almost over two million people, it's very few Ajamus, it's very few Siddiqui Abdullah Hassan. And sometimes we think there's a lot of people because when we organize an uprising or a protest, what happens is you have people who like what they call like spontaneous combustion. They are joining, not really knowing what's going on. And this is why once the riot get put down, you see a lot of other prisoners kind of like uh, disappearing from the scene because they never was there for the right purpose. So I did a study for Lincoln University. It was kind of like supposed to have been like an honorary doctor's degree on why don't you see too many Ajamus? Why don't you see many Lucino Hamiltons? T'Chaka, Olagala, Shabazz. Why don't you see those people? Why aren't there many more of them considering the oppressive nation of prison? So I, I did some studying about this. And when I came to prison in 1989, it used to be common to see a Willis X. These are the type of person like Willis X and LaSalle X and many others that's not here 
that gave me the rest of the earth as soon as I came to prison from the county jail. But you didn't see them anymore. And I'm at a, a young age. You don't see that type of prisoners no more who we call convicts. And this is the, uh, the subject of my, you know, my observations today. The difference between a convict and an inmate and how did the transformation occur within a 20-year period? What happened to the convicts? And when I say convict, I mean a person who abides by prison codes of conduct. He doesn't talk to the guards unnecessarily. He doesn't rat out or snitch on other prisoners. He carries himself in a way that's not going to undermine the, um, the collective interests of other inmates. That's what I mean by convicts, and it's very few. When I say inmates... And I'm going to talk, we, we, we're going to talk about, it's not so much a generational gap. It's a, political, a politically conscious gap. It's the level of consciousness. It has nothing to do with age. Because I came into prison in 19, I'm feeling Malcolm X. I'm feeling uh, Kwame Torrey. I'm feeling George Jackson off the bus. So it has nothing really to do with age completely, although that does play an important part. But however, you have the convicts. What happens? How do they come from convicts? How do they come from George Jackson type prisoners to the new inmates? And when I say inmates, I mean the people, they're more playful. They think it's fashionable to be on good terms with a correctional officer or with the warden. They feel it's fashionable to really actually inform on other people. And a lot of them are not even scared of that. And they do things that will, that will undermine the collective uh, will of the other prisoners with impunity, without shame. This is what I mean by inmates. And this is what most of the, the department corrections now are inmates. But how did we get here? Well, based upon my studying over 24 years of almost a quarter of a century of uh, eye observation and experience and plus my own uh, personal experience in prison. What happened? Well, after the George Jackson phenomenon, when he got killed, his brother got killed, you have the event, the Attica uprising occurred in for the first time on national TV, you begin to see radical prisoners were, were just as smart as his college professors articulating their demands on top of buildings in Attica. And that started alarming many people because that's not the type of prisoners you want incarcerated because you can't control them. When they go home, they're going to go to college. They're going to start business like myself. They're going to come to conference like this. You don't want that. That's bad for business. Plus, you can't control them. And other, like, informants in there would be afraid of them. They couldn't exist. So they had to do something with that mentality. So what they start slowly doing is right around 1980, they started, and I'm going to talk about, they start consulting, actually, people who build prisons. 
to give them advice on the psychophysics of the prison. How does the building structure affects the psyche of a prisoner? So some of the, 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 so the, the psychologists that were hired by the Department of Corrections, they began to tell them, first of all, take away the bars. Take the bars away. That'll make them less aggressive, and that'll make us more like we're part of them. You take those bars away. So this is why you see prisons now, they don't see, you don't see bars anymore. They took that away for a reason. Another thing, and these things might seem innocuous, but they're not. You go to prison, they said change the color of the prisons, because prisons used to be painted black, the bars, and you know, uh, inside used to be like dark green colors. If you go to the prisons now, they this color. They're more congenial looking colors. They're tan, peach color. And actually in Muskegon, I was shocked. They, they actually pink, believe it or not, in the male's prison, the inside of the prisons. So all of these things, although to us may seem really trivial, but they also play a part. And I'm going to get to the real serious stuff in a minute. But they changed the color of the prison. Now, I had left a prison that was built like in 1886. It's called the Michigan Reformatory. Michigan Reformatory in Ionia, Michigan. Now that's the classical prison. They got the bars and everything. It's real, look like a, uh, a gothic castle or something. It looks like, you know, what you think what a prison would be. So they transferred me to uh, Carson City. And I was shocked when I got there because when I got there, the colors was like this. There was sliding doors. There was no bars. And the, the way they were talking to us, they was like, uh, you know, gentlemen, in five minutes, you can go get your coffee in the child hall. You know, stuff like that. I was astonished. It's the first day. So what's happening is all of these things start to affect the, the, uh, the mentality of prison slowly. Now... In places like Carson City, the next thing they started doing is this is the real serious things. Now they got all the people. They took the bars away. They changed the color of the prison. Now they want to get to the real serious things because that stuff doesn't work for prisoners like me. I don't care what the prison looked like. I don't supposed to be there. I don't care if there's a waterbed in there. So, but the but the point is, the next thing that they started doing is. They start taking away the, uh, the education. They found out that with the, actually Bill Clinton did that, and it was, it was, it was hidden into his uh, Anti-Terrorism Act. And what they, what they wanted to do, and before I get to that, they wanted the, a prison to look like it was liberal, but they wanted to keep the alt-right policies in there. Now, although they were, the prison looked it different, it was still ran like white supremacists. You know, like Donald Trump was somebody was personally running these prisons. This is how they were, although they looked at congenial. But they took the, um, the education out because they know that if, by taking that out, 
there's a strong correlation between the level of education of a prisoner and the likelihood of he uh, reoffending once released. So they took that out. They closed down prison newspapers in there. And by the way, Willis X used to be one of the, the editors of the prison newspaper, and he won actually won um, oh, uh, awards. He got award, uh, world recognition for some of his uh, his work he's done, but they closed that down because a person like Willis X was writing the for real stuff. And when before they closed that down, they started pushing people like Willis X out of the you know the editorial board. They start replacing with these more made for TV CNN type you know type people that's going to put puzzles. You know, in the uh, the the, the uh, in the paper and different things like that. Now, another thing, what they start doing is they start isolating prisoners who were um, more critical of the policies, the oppressive policies, who were, you know, on the yards trying to raise the consciousness of other prisoners. They start isolating, and they came up with this idea called STG. Security threat group. It's supposed to be for a group, but it's, it's really for individuals. Because prior to 1980, we used to have a lot of religious groups in there, different Islamic groups. And then a new phenomenon started coming in 1982. And if anybody's familiar with Detroit, we had the Young Boys Incorporated, we had the Pony Downers, they call them, and many other you know, drug gangs. And slowly, these people start coming into the prison. They start getting incarcerated, and they slowly, you know, they join in groups. Different groups is in there. And eventually, this is just from my own observation. I know a lot of them personally. They be start getting in, in leadership-type roles in these groups. And sometimes, some of that, you know, drug dealer mentality will get into the group where they're starting wars amongst other groups. So we had a group called the Melanics, and Indiana had, they start, during the uh, 1980s, they start, many brothers start uh, embracing uh, Republic of New Africa. People probably have heard that. And in, 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 in the Michigan prison, they started um, embracing, you know, what they call Melanics. It's like a black nationalist militant, militant group, Lucino Hamilton, Baruti X, that's where they all come about. So um, the STG was made for people like that to keep them isolated. And this is why in the 1990s, you start seeing maximum security prisons start to proliferate in Michigan. They started Standards Max, Oaks Max, Alger Max, Mar Marquette was already there, and Barrica Max. They start isolating us and putting us in there so that we won't be able to establish some type of bond with the general population. So they keep us in total isolation. And if at best, we may come out for um, an hour on the yard. But if you like in the supermax, you lucky to come out maybe in a, this is like a dog cage, maybe twice a week for an hour. So they started doing these type of things. And then another issue is when they start isolating us, they start 
started banning certain books. It's again like the Wretched of Earth was initially on that. Blood in My Eye was on that book. And believe it or not, even prior to that, you had books like Being in Nothingness by John Paul Sartre. He was banned. How could you ban a book like that? You know, Atlas Shrugged was banned. How do you ban that? These are type of books that were banned in the prison system. So by doing this, taking the education away, it starts changing the narrative and the personality of prisoners. One officer told me, they had, I had, like I said, I was trying to do a doctorate dissertation for Lincoln University. As soon as I completed the, the warden, they confiscated it from me. When I, I had left the, you know, the cell, I was in the yard, I was in the maximum security, they confiscated my only uh, copy of it. And they used to call me out to uh, use some of my findings against me. And they told me this. They was like, you forgot to put BET. They said, we love BET. I said, why? They said, that's the best Novocaine opium for prisoners because the programming here is mostly music and entertainment is not promoting critical thinking. And they said, that's why we got that. He said, you should have put that in your dissertation too. And they was trying to really be funny, you know, uh, towards me. So over a period of time, prisoners' mentality started changing. And this is give you a general idea. Now, it's not totally the prisoner's fault because a lot of times whatever happens in society eventually reverberates in prison. George Jackson had the Black Panthers personally as his model. They were inspiring him. He was reading these books. They the one told him about this. He having direct contact with them. They got Malcolm X. They got Huey P. Newton. They got uh, Stokely Carmichael. They got all of these living examples of how to be resist evil. On today, what do you have? Al Sharpton, Reverend Jesse Jackson, Michael Eric Dyson, who made for TV. I like him. I talk to him a lot. Made for TV, a dictionary. That's it. That's what we have now. And these prisoners, they see these type of people and they model themselves around them. You don't have the revolutionary ethos like you did in the 70s. You don't, in the 60s and the 70s, excuse me. You don't have that now. But there, if you notice, the riots, I mean, the uprising in 2016, 2017, they coming right around, they building up like, what happened in per Ferguson, Trayvon Martin. So we starting to see it again now, Black Lives Matter. So you starting to see maybe younger brothers, he probably can elaborate on why he, how he became conscious, you know. But you, we don't have that now. So that's also affected the prisoner mentality and turned the convicts into inmates, or as I call them, we call them residents now. Some people ask me when I was, and I, I, I you know, there's a lot of things, and I'm about to uh, cut this short in closing. I wrote this. I was incarcerated. This is a picture of me. This is San Francisco Bay View. 
as I say, I used to try to correspond with some of the best and brightest prisoners. I wanted to know, you know, who is the smartest people in prison that I can, you know, talk to and seek advice from through the mail. I wanted to know who they are. And I end up meeting a lot of different people in California, in the shoe, you know, uh, Cochran, you know, many different prisons. And uh, I noticed that, and this was written in 2012, when people was talking to, you know, there was a, uh, the hunger strike was popular. And I said that what we need to do is start reevaluating some of our tactics, not because for cathartic release, but do they work? Can we get some measurable results from this? Oh, no matter what action it is, because this is some of the things, and I, if I, they want me to address what I was just talking to Kyle doing on the phone, some of the internal contradictions of prisoners themselves that is really like self-defeating. So I wrote this prison liberation movement needs new kinds of thinking in 2012. And a lot of brothers was kind of mad at me because they was thinking that I would just wholesale discredit them. Because I, I personally, you know, whatever method you uh, adopt, I'm for it. You know, I'm for it because you're doing something. That's the key thing. Now, if you ask my opinion on it, I'm going to tell you, well, we, we really need to, you know, do certain things and we need to stop playing checkers. Let's play chess now because this is what it is. As one of the speakers said yesterday, you have to adopt long-term strategy. But in closing, some people ask me, they say, you know what, Dennis, how do you turn out to be yourself? Why are you not walking around in the – you know, with house shoes on in the housing unit. Why are you not laughing with the 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 the, uh, the police? You know, you know why you're not in the day room watching you know MTV all day long. Well, what happens to me? while I think that I'm still a convict now, even though I'm out, is because when they put the handcuffs on me, and I can remember this, I'm on the east side of Detroit. They arrested me. I told myself for some reason. When they put the handcuffs on me, they put me in the car. I haven't made it to the, the police station yet. They put the handcuffs on me, and I told myself, I'm going to make this into a university. I'm not going to prison. I'm about to, they about to take me to Howard University. And I told myself that. So how I carried myself in prison, I never wore shower shoes, house coats, never talked to the police, no hide, no buy, no none of that. No matter what gifts they gave us, I always thought that I was on enemy territory. This is not my house, so I'm not going to get comfortable in here. And I kept books in my hand all the time when they put me in Supermax because they said my thoughts was a threat to the security of the administration. I told myself, because a lot of people commit suicide in there. They start cutting themselves and different things. They bug out. I mean, I met true revolutionaries that had all their mental faculties. After 10 years of being in, in the solitary confinement, they turned crazy and never come back from that. So I told myself, why am I, why should I be worried about this situation or afraid when Harriet Tubman, when Nat Turner, when Gabriel Prosser, all of them went far worse than this. They were getting killed. At least I'm living. I can read the Wall Street Journal, New York Times. So that's how I kept my sanity, and I kept it in that type of thinking until I got out.
This has been KiteLine. Anyone can reach us via our P.O. Box, KiteLine Radio, P.O. Box 2422, Bloomington, Indiana, 47402. You can hear previous episodes of our show at wfhb.org forward slash KiteLine. We also want your feedback and to share your story. Feel free to write us at KiteLine at wfhb.org. You can follow KiteLine Radio on all social media platforms. If you want to support our work, you can find us at patreon.com forward slash KiteLine Radio Show. Any funds raised beyond operating costs will be sent to folks on the inside. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. KiteLine, WFHB, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the opinions expressed on the show. Please join us every Friday for more stories, news, and insights about the impact of prison on our community. Thank you for listening.